Hey legends, my name is Mo and welcome to the Can't Can World podcast. I'm a Royal Marine who is dedicated to optimizing human performance and want to bring you exposure to the fantastic people supporting the same aim. Today I speak to an individual who has cultivated a successful business for over 40 years. We discuss family, business acumen, and the details surrounding the grief he suffers from his late wife, which he uses to make people better tomorrow than today. Episode five, Keith Knowles, OBE. You explained to me what your, I've read a lot about, about your dad, Ron. Yeah. You explained to me what, what he was like when you were growing up and how much of an influence he was on you. Well, he was, um, he was an East End lad and uh, he was an ex-paratrooper. He was a boxer. Uh, he was an incredibly hard man uh, and yet very soft. He was a contradictory in terms. Um, I've seen him running some pretty tough pubs. Um, when you know his first pub, which was a managed house, he worked for a a, a, a pub operator that was called JT Davis that are now um, Breakspears, and he ran this pub in Notting Hill. It's now Holland Park, but Notting Hill was quite a rough area in the 1960s uh, when he took it on. And, uh, you know, he, he, he would tell stories about how he'd be taking guns off of people before they come in the pub to have a drink and disarming them. And um, he also uh, told some quite powerful stories about how he was on a beach in Palestine and uh, there was a young junior lieutenant and the, the boats were coming ashore full of uh, families coming to, to reclaim Palestine as Israel. And the young lieutenant ordered them to open fire. And my old man said, no, we, we fought the Nazis. We're not opening fire on women and children, sir. Wow. And uh, he, was, um, he was a tough old bastard. And he landed at Arnhem. And his job was to take the mines off the bridge. And he managed to get out. So he was um, a fair but hard man. Lots of fascinating stories. So how did he go from paratrooper to starting his own business? What was it? Do you remember what the driver was? My mum hated him being in the army. <laughs> and he absolutely loved being in the army and would have stayed there. How long did he serve for? I think about nine years in total, something like that. And, um, but he came out of the army and he went into a number of different jobs and didn't particularly enjoy them. He always wanted to run a pub. And in those days, you, if you wanted to run a pub, you had to start with running an off-license. And that's what he did. Uh, he ran a, an off-license in Battersea. And then worked up to becoming a, a pub assistant manager and then a manager. And then he bought his first tenancy in Luton called the Greyhound. Uh, it's been pulled down now. It's where the old Ardown Centre. He didn't like being out of London very much. Um, and then he moved and got a, a Truman's pub in Hammersmith. How did your mum feel about his career change? Um, well, she, um, I mean, it, it, the 60s were amazing. So, you know, if you went into the saloon bar of a pub in the 60s, you put a suit and tie on. Uh, and the women wore long frocks and they had beehive hair. Uh, it really was an astonishing time. People didn't spend money on their homes. They spent money on their look and their clothing and to go out 
And uh, one of the reasons why I never smoked, actually, is we used to shut the pub at two o'clock on a Sunday. I used to come down in the bar and help them clear up. And I remember cleaning the ashtrays. It's just how repugnant it was to clean an ashtray and couldn't understand why people smoked. And the bar was just a sea of fog from all of the smoke. It stunk. It was unbelievable. So um, that was that. And, of course, my old man ended up running a gay bar as well because he, he, um, he booked an act called Mr. Shufflewick. Mr. Shufflewick was an old town music hall um, drag act. And the old man went upstairs and said, uh, right, right, love, uh, it's Mr. Shovelwick. And, and he, he said, I am Mr. Shovelwick, you silly bastard. And the old man couldn't understand why he had a pub full of uh, what he considered to be quite strange but well-dressed guys. And um, he loved the money. So that was our, our, our start of us running gay bars. And we run two. So where did, where did you get involved in How old were you when you got involved in the uh, business? Well, I was, uh, I didn't want to work for my dad, like most sons, I'd do anything not, not to work. And I, I had an argument at school. I was pretty useless at school. The only reason why they kept me there was because I could play rugby. And um, I, I, I remember um, having an argument with him, one of our many arguments that we had. And um, uh, I, I went to work in Saudi Arabia for six months, putting roofs on airports. And I got a telex from him. Do you remember that? Were you, you were even too young for that? I'm telex. probably a bit too young for that. Yeah. Uh, I got a telex saying, come home. We need you to run one of the pubs. And he, he, caught, he caught somebody um, robbing in our gay bar. We had two other bars at the time. We had uh, a city pub and a villains pub. So we had an eclectic mix of pubs. And um, so I, I went home and started to run the gay bar. It was really interesting, actually, because it was a straight bar at lunchtime. Um, we had a public bar with workers and the saloon bar was a lunchtime pub, which turned into a gay bar at night. So it really was a chameleon uh, operation, but it took a lot of money and made us a lot of money. But then something came along called AIDS and it really affected our business. And uh, a lot of heterosexual people thought that they could catch AIDS off of a beef sandwich. Uh, and they stopped coming, and we ended up turning it into a, an all-gay um, nightclub, and it worked really well as well. And, um, and we, we had that pub in the family for 25, 30 years. So how old were you at the time when, when you got the telex to come back? It was just before my 18th birthday, and I, and I got a licence to run a pub um shortly after my 18th birthday which made me one of the youngest if not the youngest licensee in britain at the time so the rule rules obviously changed from having to have an off license before but in a they completely changed yeah completely it's interesting having grown up in a pub i thought i knew how to run it i remember the first night that i i was there thinking oh my god what have i taken on and and i didn't have a clue really uh, and one of the things that I undertook very, very quickly was to adapt all of the training programs that Truman's Brewery could, thr could throw at me. Um, and I realised the value of training because when you run a pub and you're the manager or you're the single operator of, of a pub, you've got to understand the ins and outs of a P&L. You've got to be able to write a margin and understand a margin. 
You've got to understand the market. So you've got to be a marketeer as well. You've got to be a HR manager and you've got to have all of the practical skills of actually uh, choosing the right stock. So you've got to understand brands. I remember having a big argument with uh, our brewery because we were tied and we used to sell a thing called pills. Uh, I don't even know if that's, that exists anymore. It's called Holston Pills. We actually used to sell, get this, three and a half tonnes of cases of Holston pills. And in those days, to get them cold, we, the ice shelves used to freeze the bottles on. And sometimes you'd break a bottle and the beer would flow all over the ice shelf where it had actually got, gone on there solid. You could never re-bottle up. You had to de-ice the shelf. You know, so it was, it was a fascinating old time. Um, and I can still remember our beer order now. And we used to sell an enormous amount of beer, but very few brands. And when brands started coming on, I remember there was a beer called Rolling Rock uh, and the brewery would only let their managed houses stock it. And so I, I uh, researched the law of the tie and looked up European law and basically found the right articles that said, they could tie us, but they had to give us a range of beer which could compete in the local marketplace. And, you know, my um, my customers wanted to drink Rolling Rock and Soul. Do you remember that? That was another one with the little wedge of lemon in the top. And I, I got them to abide by the law. They couldn't tie you for your um, services either. So they used to put uh, rent on your um uh, the, the rent bill we had insurance on top of it for the building and I again got researched and found out that they couldn't tie you for that unless they were providing the same insurance for the market price and they of course most of these brewers would overcharge the tenant by as much as 30 percent can you just explain that that sort of dynamic where the relationship between the pub and the brewery is it owned by them or do you rent it off them? Or how, do, how does that work? So what, what happened years ago is you had, you had probably three different bases of operation. You had a manager who worked for the brewery and it was called a managed pub that still exists today. You had a tenancy and the tenancy was for a defined period, typically three years. And you would basically agree to rent that pub for a fixed rent of a period of time and you would buy the product that they tie you to. And um, the last model was called a lease. And the lease is you'd have a fixed period of time and you could negotiate the terms and conditions of how you, you did it, just in the same way as any commercial lease now. And, and then, of course, there was um, people that owned their, their, their pubs outright. So where we are now today, we only have one tied pub left over, uh, at least. Um, so we've gone full circle and we own about 40% of our businesses, uh, the freeholds of them outright. So in effect, you become a bit of a property business. But what I'm trying to demonstrate and talking to you about when you've got a lease or you've got a tenancy, you begin to learn and understand the, the, the trading terms. And that comes through, through training, through education, through actually wanting to get out there and find out what you can and what you can't do. And I think that's, that's something that I've done throughout my whole life is want to understand what the, the trading terms and conditions 
can be and how you can exploit them for your best endeavors. And um, I think the scouts taught me a lot of that. I was a sea scout and sea scouts and rugby are the two things that really um, have given me the confidence to do what I've done. Um, and I, I, I've enjoyed that aspect of my life. And that's one of the reasons why I give back to youth organisations in particular, trying to get them to have the same opportunities that we had. But back in, back in the 70s, some of the things that we, we did then, they would never allow us to do now. Risk assessment would stop people from doing that. So, you know, we, I remember taking a command of an aluminium lifeboat, 26 foot, with a dumper truck engine in it and four scouts and three and a half tons of, of camping equipment leaving from Chiswick at Easter when it was snowing. And you had to wind this dumper truck engine up. And when you threw the levers down, it could kick back and nearly take your arm off. I was a 14-year-old venture scout going up the river. Took two days to get to Marlow with the camping equipment. It was, uh, you know, I didn't know it at the, at the time, but it was a highlight of my life doing that sort of thing as, as a young man. And, and, I, and I just wonder whether we, we've got to the stage where we stop people from doing that sort of stuff, uh, where we're running, uh, trying to get risk out of people's lives to the point where they won't do things both in business and in life. And, and you still take risks even today. Where, where did, going back to, the, going back to the, the pub, where did one pub become two, become three? How did that start, that, the expansion? So my dad uh, had a pub called The White Lion in Holborn, which was uh, a bit of a villain's pub. And we did it up, we turned it into the Dickens. It's now a block of flats now. Um, and he also had a pub called the Hercules Pillars, which is still in our, our business now today, which is in Great Queen Street, opposite Freemasons Hall. And my dad was a Freemason and he used to, you know, pubs used to shut at three o'clock in those days. But we took more money illegally shut at three o'clock with Masons drinking through the back door than we ever have down nowadays legally. Bizarre. There's something really naughty, isn't it, about being in a pub when it's shut. And having a beer when when you know I'm doing something that you can't do, you know. Sort I wouldn't know. Of I wouldn't know anything about that, Keith. <laughs> absolutely. So um, and then what happened is we, my dad retired, and we just started taking on loads and loads and loads of pubs. We we got to this idea of wanting to do fireside pubs, um, and we took on a pub called the Stag in Burnham Beaches, and we invested far too much money in it. Um, because my dad had retired and I just wanted to impress him um, buying a brass fitted light that was a spray on brass light. Now, I wouldn't have that. It had to be a solid brass light from David Hunt Lighting that cost about four times as much. And, you know, and I, and I was always into technology. So I went for the, the stock take tills and, you know, we, we, we had this vision of what we were going to do 30 years ago. And yeah, just spent far, far too much money on trying to impress my dad uh, on an image. Obviously, you got utmost respect for your dad, and but you know, you said before that there's no way you wanted to work for him. So you get this telex, he calls you back to come and help out, and the next thing you know, you've been embroiled into this family business, as it were. How did, how did that happen? I mean, is he the master of magic and trickery, or did you just? No, really I, 
Well, I come back and I work for him, but I mean, we spent most of our time arguing. Um, Why do you think I was? He didn't like me um, very much. Um, so he thought I was um, up my own self knob, I think is some of the description. And we, we you know, we would physically fight. Um, and that's why I went to Saudi Arabia. We had a physical fight and, and I left him. Um, so when I was a kid, he used to he used to sort of take his belt off to us and belt us. And um, so you say us, you got brothers and sisters. I've got a brother as well. Yeah. Okay. And my brother's gone off on a completely different um, dis- dysfunctional life where he spent most of his time uh, in and out of prison uh, through drugs and alcohol. But the old man, you know, one day. I'd come home from rugby and we were having an argument or whatever, and he punched me. And I remember going through the air because you know, he, he was a boxing champion for the army. So if he hit you, you knew you'd been hit. And I remember I got up and I said, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And he punched me again. And, and I said, right, I'm going to do something about this. I'm not going to have it anymore. So I actually studied karate for three years. And um, he then went to punch me again. And I stepped out of the way and said, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I have warned you. And he went to punch me again, and I said, I will hurt you. And, and I just broke his leg, put him on his ass, looked at him and said, that's it, I'm off. And I went to Saudi Arabia, uh, and I was out there for six months. Wow. So it was a big family thing to come back together. And, you know, I, run, I wanted to professionalise the way that we run the business. I, I, I wanted to, you know, really understand different price structures, how we can maximise our profits, and I don't, I don't know where or how I got this, but it's just in me. It's just, you know, I look at something and I, and I think of it in different ways. Uh, I'm profoundly dyslexic. So dyslexic people think in circles. We don't think up and down straight lines. Some people like that. Some people don't. I always tell people who have got kids that are dyslexic and they worry about them. And I said there's a magnificent book called The Gift of Dyslexia. And... Um, it really is a gift. We think completely differently. So I, I was trying to educate my dad that we could make more money doing it this way than doing it his way. And, and I think, and, and of course, the ironic part is I've now got my son in the business telling me we can make more money if we do it this way than that way. And I look at him and I go, that's a good idea. Let's do that. He's not, he's he's not broken me. your leg yet then. He's not broken your <laughs> leg yet. And, um, and, I, and I say to him, you know, I, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it that way, but we could. So we work closer together. So the, the gift that my father gave me was the opportunity to have a better relationship with my own children. And, and that's a powerful gift. Sometimes you can learn more from people doing things badly than you can from doing things well. May may seem like a bit of a random question, but did you like him? I absolutely loved him. Uh, I adored him, um, but I never felt valued by him. I never felt that I could actually. Um, so when I finished doing this pub, you'd love it. So it was immaculate. It was brilliant. It looked fantastic. I'd taken all the latest design techniques, and I walked him around it, and I showed him what we'd done. And he looked at me and he said, I, I love this pub. He's done really well here, but no chimney pots. And he was absolutely right. Drink driving had just come in. <laughs> and people, 
people were really careful and we'd created something where you needed a chef what are chefs but cooks with attitude and you know we couldn't deliver the menu we we went 20 years in this pub um and and we probably came out all right in the end but it wasn't what we were doing so we ended up with a pub group where we were running the villains pub a mason's pub two gay bars and an upmarket food pub and we we were struggling to make any money we we're paying all of our rents we we're paying all of our suppliers but we weren't really getting a return on our investment other than more work and taking on more pubs in the belief that we could and i i am and was a member of a thing called the british institute of innkeeping and there was a guy called gerald richardson funny how you remember these people in your life the uh and um he was the chairman of this institute and he was in Beaconsfield and he was running some really, really powerful pubs. And one of the things he did was to go and work for the brewery to be an area manager so he could understand both sides of the, of the, of the story. And he set up this amazing um, company and he was the first individual to bring lap dancing to Britain. He brought for your eyes only which was, you know, amazing at the time that anybody had the balls to do that. So I went and saw him. I said, Gerald, I said, um, I wonder if you could help me, you know, with my business. I, I don't seem to be making any money. And, um, yeah. and he said, right, he said. So he sat me down and he worked and he looked at it. And it was over a period of a few months. He said, what I want you to do, and he never gave me the solution. He said, I want you to go and undertake doing investors in people. So my wife, Frank, who was our HR director, we looked at it, and at the time, we'd have a fairly high turnover of staff, and uh, we were doing various different things. And when we did our first audit from Investors in People, this uh, lady came into my office, and she said to me, so, Mr. MD, what is it you want to do with your business? Make money. How are you going to make money? Sell beer. How are you going to sell beer? And I looked at her and said, are you taking the piss? She said, no, but I think you are because I'm not sure that you know how to sell beer. What? You know, and, and my wife said, tell him more. And basically they sat me down. And whilst I did know how to sell beer, I didn't know how to run a business. I knew how to run a single pub, but I didn't know how to run a multitude of pubs. I needed to be trained to some extent. Ironically, just talking to you, it's a, it's a bit about where I am now. I've got to think about how we progress the business through the next stage. So what we did is we, we undertook this program and realised that it was us that was the problem, senior management team. We needed to change our direction. We needed to change what we were going to do. And through that, we did a lot of research into pubs. So you could carry on selling beer. But if you were selling beer in a tired estate to a brewery, your margins were limited because you had to buy the beer at their margin. You could cheat them by buying beer outside of the tie and selling it illegally through your operation. They had no, there's no point in doing that. You can't be a little bit Benny. So I didn't want to do that. You could sell food. And if you sell food, you come with chefs, cooks with attitude who'd throw tantrums and walk out in the middle of a session. So I didn't want to do that. Or you could look at accommodation or other income. So everybody naturally goes to the mid-tier accommodation, two-star, you know, everybody understands room above pubs. We started looking at that. And it was the same time as Travel Lodge and Premier Inn were kicking off. 
So there's going to be some big players in the market. We didn't think we could compete with them. But basically, when you really analysed our business, we were renting space. And how could you maximise that space to derive an income? And then we looked at um, boutique accommodation, right high-end stuff. But that come with a chef again, so we ruled that out. And somebody said, what about backpackers? And I said, what's the backpackers? So the thought that someone would want to share a room with me, fighting and burping all night long, um, I found a bit odd. And we did lots and lots of research about it. And the more research we did on it, the more that we realised it was poorly done. In those um, days, backpackers mainly went to Earl's Court. They lived in two-star that become no-star. It was a fire trap and they'd be unrolling their sleeping bags in them. They were real flea pits, horrible. And so the more research we did in it, we, we got a brewery to actually back us because we didn't have particularly very much money. And we built our first 48-bed backpacker hostel above um, 121 Borough High Street. And on the wall, it says, here stands St. Christopher's, uh, or Chris, Christopher Inn, formerly, you know, a coach um, pub. Was that the birthplace of Beds and Bars? So I said, we'll call it St. Christopher's. So um, we did our first hostel. And from that, one of the brewery's directors, a guy called Tim Sykes, very, we called him Blue Blood, spoke wonderfully well. And he came and saw me and he said, hello, Keith. He said, I really would quite like to join you, you know. I'm, I've got a bit of pin money and I'd like to put it in and, um, you know, see where we get to. And we, we took that money and we built three more in London, Greenwich, Camden, and one called The Village. And the thing that we completely not invested in was our website. And we basically weren't full. We were used to being full, doing very little work. So when, what year was this? That was 98. And that's Beds and 90. Bars? Is that when and Beds and Bars was? Yeah, okay. So it, it's, it started from R.C. Knowles and Sons Limited and, in, and it went into being called um, Interpub. Interpub is still our UK trading arm. And Beds and Bars is actually our holding company, holding uh, business. It owns, owns the uh, holding business of uh, all of our companies. So we really understood quickly about websites and marketing. And um, the other front row player of my rugby club had gone into being a web marketeer. And I said, here, Drakey, do you want to come and work for me? I need somebody to sort out my web. And basically he did. And we had a female ice hockey player who was, um, she was a, uh, they call them an eight, eight stack coder. And the two of them got together and she worked for beer and curry and free accommodation. Um, and she, the, the two of them built our first website. And from there, we've never looked back. And we've you know, realised the power of technology constantly changing and how you do things. And our first foreign site was in Scotland. Um, you could argue Cornwall, uh, depending on what side of the Tamar you come from. And that, that was an interesting experience. We made a, a real bad mistake. Scottish and Newcastle become investors in our business. And we, we attracted quite a lot of investment to do these things. 
and uh, we got a Glaswegian lawyer dealing with an Erodian lawyer from Edinburgh. And they just got into a pissing competition the whole time and trying to get the lease agreed on this site took forever. But eventually we did it. And, and then we did Bruges after that. Um, we did um, Germany to site in, in Berlin just about a year after the wall come down. That was just an amazing experience. I still love going to Berlin because each time you go there, it's changed. I've never known a city change so much and all, all for the better. Is that why it was amazing? Yeah, I mean, just an amazing. I mean, it was like, it, it really was like out of a uh, Michael Caine, you know, spy film the first time we went there. Pipes down the street and, you know, the, the building that we've got has got quite a lot of history and, you know, it's opposite the people theatre uh, in, in Berlin where, you know, there was quite a lot went on with the Nazis. Our building was the uh, Labour Communist Party building and, you know, it was um, it's just reeked with history. And the, the little bar downstairs was where the East German and the Stasi police used to have their own private bar. Uh, I keep thinking we should reinstate it at some stage. Uh, we use it as a comedy club now. How ironic is that? And, uh, you know, closely followed, we, we did um, a site in Amsterdam, which was great because, as you know, my wife was Dutch. Kids are half Dutch. And we took on the, the two flying pigs shortly after that. Um, and we, we've done Barcelona. So uh, the business got to... Um, a turnover of 62 million, uh, employing a, a thousand staff, uh, an EBITDA profit of um, just just over six, um, and more if you add back my salary and my kids. And now we're fighting for survival, and you have to look at your options. And it's interesting because one of our options is um, carry on as we are see what happens, believe in synchronicity, and that is an option. We could do that. Carry on as we are, reduce debt. So when, when we went into this, we had six million in the bank and 12 million of debt. And so we had less than two times our earnings debt. We were uh, classically undergeared. We needed to take on more debt to expand. You get on this little sort of roller car of, of um of what you need to do in business. And, you know, my son and my team were pushing me to, you know, come on, we've got to expand the business. And I was quite happy to do that. And we raised some more money from the bank. Uh, we were turning down offers of, um, of purchasing. So one of the real powers of Beds and Bars is our brand, St. Christopher's. So we know that we can take a site and open at about 87 to 88% occupancy on day one. And that's better than the Hilton Group. So we know that with our users, we've got around 10 million users on our website and a normal, normal times. And you know, we, we create more than 50% of our own revenue rather than using booking agents or OTAs, online travel associations. Um, so that's why there's interest in us from PEs. Um, that's private equity or PEs is private equity or venture capital. And one of my uh, things that I'm super proud of from undertaking that um, 
Investors and People Programme, we realised that we didn't know how to run our first St Christopher's. We went through three different sets of managers and I just assumed as we employed the wrong people, so just carry on doing more of the same. And my wife said, no, we don't actually understand what we've built. So she went and run it for six weeks. And she came out and she said, we really don't understand this business. So she wrote a template of needs as to the management of the business and how it needed to be structured. And her and Murray Roberts, who um, was our sales director, wrote a training program all around a thing called footsteps. And we took the footsteps idea from the RYA training book, which takes you from competent crew to ocean yacht master. And I'd always said that if we could get the spirit of the London Sailing Project stroke the Rona Trust in our business, there'd be no turning back. So we should look at the structure of how we, how we sell the boat. So I always think of my GMs as captains of their ships um, and how we, we, we try and give them a structure of things that we'll never ever move away from, which is our four core principles or cornerstones of our business which is safe, we have to build things safe, and we have to ensure that if there's a fire, people can get out. And that comes from my training as a yachtsman uh, and as a pilot. Uh, and secure, when you walk into one of our environments, do you as a customer feel secure? Because you're, you're assessing what have I walked into, is it hot, is it cold, is it, am I in a threat environment? And everybody does that, whether they're conscious or unconscious of it, but they do. And when you come up to the, to the reception and you've got somebody that smiles at you, it tends to make you feel happy. And if, it, it, if it's a genuine smile, you can see in that person's eyes that it's not a fabricated smile. It's one where someone is genuinely trying to make contact with you because they are happy. Um, so we realised that if we... A lot of training management books talk about the customer is king. We think that's wrong, ask about face. We think that our team is king because if our team are motivated, if they are valued, if they are content, then the product that we give is hospitality. That hospitality will work. You can get a beer anywhere. You can get a bed anywhere. How can you get somewhere where you feel secure is a part of what we attempt to do and do do. And then the next one is value. So people have got to be paid correctly. They've got to be trained correctly. So the training program has got to help them be better equipped, better people, not just in our business, but in all businesses, in all walks of life, in every aspect of their life. So our training program takes them through a process that enhances their employability. And that means that the chances of them leaving us goes up. And it also means that we can retain those people. So in, until um, COVID, our retention of staff was industry best. Um, we, we, we have about 8% turnover of our staff before COVID, pre-COVID. Uh, and most of those are because of their students and their, their natural flow in and out. And, and it's fair to say that some people won't like our culture. They don't fit. 
So they leave and they leave very quickly. And the, the thing that we created is we share that training with everyone. So, you know, you started the conversation today um, where, uh, what have you done that's good in the last few days? So I was speaking to a guy called Philip Forley. He runs uh, Forley Taverns down in uh, Thanet. So Ramsgate, Marsgate, all around that area, seaside. Family business, they've been going for many, many years. And I was chatting away to him and I was saying, you know, if you want to have some of your people come on our training program, that would be great. Can we have some come on yours? Because I'm sure we can learn from you as well. There's nobody that's got all the answers. We don't even know all the questions. So having a culture where you share your training and one of our non-exec directors, when he saw what Franker and Murray had put together, didn't want us to share it with anyone. Well, if you think about it, it's bollocks. Because if you've got 8% turnover of staff, and at the time it was a lot more than that, um, they'll take that training program with them. So if you say, we want you to take that training program with you, we want you to encourage people, we find that people come back and share their experiences with us as well, which is, it's a flow of energy. And that's why Franka got awarded her MBE, um, because she championed that exchange of training, realising that hospitality has got a pretty shit uh, reputation as an employer. Um, and yet, you know, I can think of 20 people in my company that earn more than the first sea lord quite comfortably. Um, and, you know, I'm proud of that. Uh, and when I, tell, when I tell people the salaries that can be earned in hospitality and the level of responsibility that they have, and I think it's, it's absolutely rewarded. Um, but when, when we went into this competition, um, we beat, with our training programme and Franco's endeavours, we beat the uh, Weatherspoons, we beat Whitbread, we beat Bass, you know, and you know, small beds and bars with 22 businesses came out better than, than most of those. It's amazing. It, and, it, and it felt it felt and it feels right today. But it comes back to so what do I do? Do I you know sell an asset, pay off some of my debt to get my T's and P's back into pressure? Can we trade out? How long would it take me to get my income back? I don't know. Do I do a sidecar business where I actually you know say to some investors, right, we will invest your money in sites, we'll put our management team in, we'll put our brands in. We'll run this for five years, and at five years, we'll sell it. We'll give you a return, but we want sweet equity. And the equity that we want in that would pay off the debt in the mothership. That's one of our options. And most people want to have shares in the main company. And the thing that worries me is protecting that, protecting our culture. Almost a bit like the Royal Marines. Our culture is unique, and um, but culture won't pay the bills. And you've got to stick. Has this been, do you think, the, the most challenging time for you in business? It's been the most challenging time for me in business, but not in my life. Yeah. The, the, most, the most challenging time for me in my life was at a time when my wife was dying. Um, we'd taken on a site in Paris called Le Rotund, uh, which was a bit of a vanity project. We'd gone off piece. Um, and taken on a listed building because the mayor of Paris wanted us to run it. 
And we, we invested in a French team to run it and we got it wrong. Uh, and it cost us uh, a million and a half quid. And at the same time that uh, we had the Olympics in London and people stopped coming to London. You know, we, we, we were so good at saying London is going to be packed and London's going to be expensive. People didn't come here. So um, that cost me a million quid. You could have fired a cannonball down Regent Street at midday, mid-Olympics and not hit anyone. And, and the banks turned on me and they were utter bastards. And it's something I'll, I'll never forget. Don't look back in anger because that's wasted, but learn the lessons of that. And, you know, we were pushing on through boundaries of what we thought was the right thing to do. A storm hit us. We'd gone off piece. That had gone wrong. My wife was dying. And we were about to open our biggest site that we'd ever done, which uh, is uh, Garden Or in Paris. 650 beds, 25 metres from the front door of Paris. Kind of feels like that was a good thing to do. And we got put into this um, uh, business support unit, which is anything but business support by the banks. And um, this team were just trying to get our business off of us for nothing and trying to get us for a breach of covenant. And the team that were involved in trying to get us, basically, I stood firm. It was my father's uh, paratrooper type part in me, looked him in the eye and said, fuck off, I'm not going to play your game. And that team ended up going to prison because they were trying to get assets cheap and selling them to their friends and getting a kickback. So there was, there was something that was righteous about it. But dealing with all of that was the toughest time of my life. Keith, I'd, I'd, I'd like to come back to come back to that in a moment. Just, I'd, I've just got one more question, if I may. I mean, you, you, you are, you're a seasoned veteran when it comes to, to being successful in business because, you know, from the outside in, certainly professionally, you, are, you have been a, a success, albeit it's trying times now with the, uh, with the way that things are with the coronavirus. What advice would you give someone that's starting business now? Well, you can almost say that I'm starting business now again myself, although I've got that platform. We're, we're having to re, re-look at everything we do. So one of the things is uh, research your idea. Really spend some time on researching your idea and, and understanding whether or not there's a market there for what you want to do. Don't undervalue yourself either. So don't underprice what you're doing uh, and don't overprice what you're doing. Don't be frightened to ask for advice. Don't be frightened to ask a mentor. Yes, if, if I hadn't had Gerald Richardson, I wouldn't have gone to the investors in people. If I hadn't had investors in people, Frank wouldn't have kicked my ass into understanding that actually I didn't know how to run a business. I knew how to run a pub, but I didn't know how to run a business. Fundamental difference. So you've got to grow your skill base. You've got to be prepared to have continuous training. Never believe that you've got there. Um, and always, always, always have confidence and belief in yourself. And when you're employing somebody, that's one of the biggest decisions of your life. If it looks like a duck, smells like a duck, walks like a duck, it's a fucking duck. Don't employ it. So always, always, always trust your instincts. Um, some of the times when I've employed senior management and I've wanted to give them a chance and you know, human nature wants us to be good. That can be super expensive uh, and can cost you a lot of money. So if someone's not performing, be fair to someone, 
understand why they're not performing, give them key performance objectives and they're not performing, you must move those people on. Um, and you know, don't be frightened to push the boundaries of what you're doing. That's how you're going to get you know, products um, that are innovative and relevant. So if you think about what we've done and the journey that we've been on, so COVID, for instance, some of the things that it's taught us is um, you know, I never thought that someone would want to order their drinks off of one of these or their food. But in Newquay, the experience that we had was the team loved it because it was coordinated. There wasn't people waiting at the bar. Oh, sorry, we're, we're talking about ordering off your phone, yeah? Ordering off your phone. But the customer ordered better liquids. They ordered more sides. So we took more money and that meant more margin and our team got tips. So, you know, what I thought, why wouldn't someone want to, you know, interact with someone at a bar? You know, it's not about a machine. We've got a better level of interaction and a better quality of service and we made more money. So, you know, actually, I, I, I stroke my phone now. I think it's a marvellous thing. You know, and we, we will be going on to how does the phone become your key card? So when you book a room in St. Christopher's, the key card will be activated and it will be able to open all the rooms and all the keys wherever you book at whatever site you book and it will give us better connection with our customer as well so lots of ways that we're bringing technology into into play but what's the motivation of travel is to meet people it's education through travel you know and one of the things i'm immensely proud of with beds and bars we have 93 different nationalities working in our company that, that that actually comes to the last cornerstone of our business, which is fun. So it's safe, secure, value, and fun. And fun is a fantastic experience for our team and customer alike, united in our endeavours to put heads in beds and bums in bars. It's what we do. And I don't think those cornerstones will ever change. But the way that we, the way that we train people, the way that we interact with people. Um, can change but people's motivation for hospitality is to meet people you know is to actually go out sit there and do what we're doing well i would really love to have done this over a beer in a country pub by a log fire you know with my dog sat inside um, that would have been super nice because it's kind of what we do and is it what we're going to do in the future yeah i think so will we will we have to adapt and change our brand maybe you know, we've already got pods and pods is what come from Japan. We just had to make them bigger because Europeans tend to be bigger. You won't get a Swede in a Japanese pod. They just or a Dutchman. So, I mean, it, what you're talking about is connection, basically. You know, and humans are wired to connect with people. Um, and at the moment, we, ha we, we have to do that digitally. But I think that that will lead nicely on to um, the connection with Franca and I'm interested to know how the how the hell did she pick up someone like you? I mean, you know, no no disrespect, but you know, there's better oil paintings out there. You know, what? Explain to me, explain to me how you managed to turn that lady's head. Well, Kate Moss, <laughs> uh, um, I was going out with her sister actually, and I went to Holland and I met her. So that that's, was greedy. <laughs> that's greedy. That's uh, greedy. 
<laughs> double, double Dutch comes on with a new meaning, doesn't it? Eh? So, no, I, I, I mean, you know, uh, when I met Franco, we, we were married and I was married to my, my well, I wasn't married, I got married later on, about five years later. And, you know, she went through a divorce, I went through a divorce, I'd always liked her. I was fortunate enough to be able to um, go with her, but it made the kids sort of, you know, um, what do they call those lines, heritage lines, interesting sisters, brother-in-laws, you know, so perhaps I ought to have a banjo close by, I don't know, but, um, you know, so Franca was um, uh, an amazing lady in that she was incredibly strong and could get me to do things without me even necessarily knowing I was doing it. And she was able to take ideas and you know, discard the, the poor ones and maximise the good ones. And she had a, an ability to make people feel good, even if she was firing somebody. Um, and she, um, you know, she, she was uh, an amazing light in the business. We, we started the hostel brand, calling it the Hostels with Attitude. And it would only been a few months and when she rewrote the brand uh, training guide or footsteps she looked at it and said I really really don't like this it's not about hostels of attitude we're about live your life and live your life has become um, the live your life awards that we do within our own business so every single month every um, GM and every one from the central support team we don't have a head office, we have a central support team. Our job is to support the, the teams running the, the units. That's what we do. And um, we have uh, a nomination comes from every single individual. Um, we will choose one individual who's the employee of the month it's, and it's bloody hard. I'll send you one when we're, when we're doing it again. And from that, we, we, we have an employee of the year and that person will be awarded a Braymont watch uh, and we give them a thousand pounds and we give them a month's paid leave to get away. We have sabbaticals um, where if you work with the company for um, five years, you get a month's paid leave in addition to your normal holiday. If it's 10 years, it's two months. We think it's really important that people go away and recharge themselves. And we have Live Your Life Awards is in our industry. It's, it's actually gone through to the British Institute of Inkeeping. So people that have won the Live Your Life Award, the first uh, chap was Ian Payne, who runs Stonegate. None of you would have heard of Stonegate, but look the company up. You'd be astonished at how big it is. And Ian Payne is just a man who reinvests back in his people. He wants people to be able to do their best. And if, he's work, if they're working for us, they're going to work for somebody else. He's quite happy with that. We then had David Bruce, who set up uh, Bruce's Breweries. Do you remember those? Uh, um, the Dog's Bollocks beer, do you remember that? Uh, um, uh, he, he set all that lot up. And he now runs the West Berkshire Brewery. And it's interesting about David Bruce. When he, when he sold his company, and I, it, I'm trying to think of what they were called. Uh, his pubs might come to me in a moment. But when he sold that company, he made a lot of money. And he put 10% of all of his money into buying canal boats for disabled people to go on holidays. And he and his wife would go and clean the boats on a Sunday uh, at Reading every Sunday 
and he did that for 10 years. So he didn't just give, put his money in and run. He was involved in that organisation. Um, so he, he, he got a Live Your Life Award. Sorry, and that was all, that was all created by Franca? By, by Franca, yeah. Well, no, we've done that in her memory of her name because she was the only individual that won the NITA Awards, which is the, the National Training Awards, beating national companies. So the British Institute of Inkeeping wanted to do something that would inspire other people to follow in her memory to take on big companies, uh, to, 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 to be prepared to have a go against them. And the next guy who won this award has done just that, and that's Chris Gambell. He runs pubs, brew house and kitchen. And then uh, the last winner of the awards has just cashed in 50 million quid's worth of shares last week was Tim Martin. And uh, I, I went down after being at CTC and, and presented it to him. And, um, you know, he sat there in a pair of rugby shorts and an old T-shirt uh, while we presented him it. And, you know, this year we'll be, we'll be awarding it again when we can. So we, we, we keep her spirit. And then once a, once a year on the 30th of July, which is her birthday, we do Live Your Life Day, when we in the industry try and get people from all walks, uh, all walks of life to register for their DNA um, for leukemia and the future treatment of cancer will be around understanding the DNA and how you can actually put individual um, cures to fight that. Um, so a register of DNA is right, super, super important. But also if you're of mixed race, so if you've got somebody who is um, black ethnic, marries an Arab, then the, the chances of finding their DNA gets less. So we, once a year, we do this Live Your Life Week when we work with people. The Navy's been involved with helping me with that as well. So it costs no money. But since we've done that, we think we've saved about 1,500 people's lives. Wow. So that's, that's really, really something that gives us a lot of joy. And we do that with Europe's famous hostels as well. Um, and it's, it, it, it might sound crass, but the power of people uniting together is unstoppable. It, it really is. And that, that's something that, that Franca has, has taught me. And she also said to me, and, and I've got a, a picture of her in my hallway, which I think I sent to you, uh, the rockier the road, the greater the beauty once we've travelled through it. And, and to really appreciate and accept the gifts that we've, we have in this life and to recognise them and to value them. Uh, and some of those gifts can be really quite simple things and some of them can be very major things. Um, like working with you on mental fitness and mental health with the Royal Navy it gives me gives me a, a, a degree of joy. Could you explain the time when you realised that Franca was was it not very well? She was poorly, and the events leading from that. It was. Um, I was actually working from home here, and I got a call that Franca had collapsed in our coffee shop in in London, and. And I remember uh, getting in the car thinking, don't drive like a wanker. I remember thinking that all the way as I was, you know, don't drive like a wanker. Uh, and I, I remember saying that, you know, stopping at the lights, doing all of the things, because I had to, she was in St. Thomas's Hospital. And it was a Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon. And she collapsed uh, in the coffee shop and had a fit. And we'd only just bought this house. How old was she? at the time uh 52 
uh, and we, um, when I got there, one of the guys who I played rugby with, his uh, wife worked in the hospital and she was there. And one of my GMs was there as well. And we um, I sat down and assessed and we, we didn't know why she had a fit. She just had a fit. And the hospital, I remember looking around me and thinking, this doesn't feel very well organised. You know, your instinct just says that. You know, they, they basically didn't do anything. She stayed on that trolley. Um, we were saying, what are you going to do? It was says, and we had much the same on the Thursday. And I was getting more and more distraught. And eventually they did an MRI scan, but didn't tell us anything. And on, on the Friday, she was still on the trolley in, in the you know, um, examination area. It was, it was really bizarre. And um, the doctor came in with a group of students and looked over and said, um, right, he said, uh, this patient here has a, a shadow on her brain, could be a brain tumour, could be a stroke. We'll find out next Tuesday. Uh, okay, thank you. Turn around, fuck off. I'd like to meet that guy again. Uh, I'd like to explain my displeasure to him. And I, and I remember just feeling that the world had opened up and, you know, we didn't know what to do. And rugby is an amazing fraternity. It, it really is. And we got them to put her on a ward because being on an accident and emergency award on a Friday in London is not a good place to be. And we got her to put her on a ward. And on the ward, there was a French girl who um, was in all sorts of states and nobody could speak French. And Franca spoke um, four languages fluently. And she spoke to uh, the, the, the team and, and calmed the situation down. And for it was a bank holiday in the summer. And um, they did nothing. And, and I, I just couldn't get my head around how ineffective the, the hospital was. And on the Tuesday morning, one of my rugby club had got a brain specialist, a neurosurgeon that had flown in from the States and that was going to a conference to come and have a look at the scan. And he was at her bedside at five o'clock uh, and woke me up, looked at the scan. And he said, yes, a front lobal scan, uh, brain tumour. It's about the size of um, a mandarin. Uh, I can operate on that if you want me to while I'm here. I'll be delighted to help you. And another guy from the rugby club had actually got an ambulance, private ambulance, to pick us up from, from uh, outside and took her to the National Neurological Hospital, where she met a guy called Neil Kitchen, who's become a family friend. And uh, he operated on her the following day. And when I asked Franka, why did you pick Neil Kitchen rather than the American? She said, I liked his hands. Um, so that was that. And then uh, we went about our business and we had you know, five years of reasonable quality of life, actually. Um, once a year, we'd have to go in for the scan, which was not very pleasant because you just didn't know what was happening. Um, As in, you, then, mean, you mean that you didn't know if they didn't yeah, exactly whether it had grown. And, and I found myself getting very agitated that when we were having to go. And how was she with it all? She never complained once. Not ever once said a word. And um, when we went back one year and it had started to grow back and it was going to need to be operated on, I remember we were in the car outside and she said, Did you, do you still want me? Which I found 
very, very odd question and said, I'll never leave you. I'm, a, I'm, I'm in this and we'll get through it and you're going to be fine. And Neil operated on her again. After that, we went to an oncologist who was a strange guy, really was a strange guy, come up with all sorts of different things. Franker embraced a lot of natural healing, natural therapy. I mean, they did think that she was going to live for five years and she lived for 11 and a half. Um, and she uh, embraced a thing called the well cell, which is light therapy. She uh, meditated. And at one stage, the tumour was actually going in reverse again, just through the power of the mind. It was quite astonishing. And she had um, uh, some radiotherapy, which was grim. We had to drive into London every day for six weeks, Monday to Friday, put chain mail over her. It, it really was unpleasant. And, you know, the, the thing about me is I'm used to, I'm used to fixing things. So I, I would research whether or not I should take her somewhere else, uh, whether I should take her to the States. I got a Dutch um, neuro, uh, neurologist uh, to check her and talk to her in her own language so she could really understand what was going on. I got a Swiss medical team to check her out as well as to whether or not I was doing the right thing. And so I wanted to make sure that I was doing everything I could do to help her. And she really didn't want to do um, the radiotherapy that was against her beliefs. She didn't like um, um, anything that was intruding in her body in terms of uh, chemotherapy, radiotherapy. And she went away. I'll never forget that. She went and lived in Switzerland for a month to think about it. Um, we've got a home there in the mountains. And she came back and she said, yes, I'll, I'll embrace this. I, I want to embrace it. And she did. And, you know, we had about 18 months of reasonable life. And then she started to deteriorate. We tried the chemotherapy. And she got worse and worse. And the last stages of her life, the last six months of her life, I thought I was invincible, that I could do it all myself. And I, I was completely exhausted in the end. I couldn't, couldn't do anything. I'm, I'm sad to say I lost my temper with her a couple of times, which is awful. And my stepson, Jan, and his wife came over from China and helped, which was an enormous help. But we couldn't get carers in to help. They, they weren't very good. They weren't very well trained. The health system, I had a, a girl who stood in my kitchen who was an occupational therapist, and she said, when you live in a house like this, you shouldn't expect any help from the NHS. I spotted that she had a deep vein thrombosis, and I argued with it about it to um, her oncologist and the GP. And in the end, we took her for a scan, and she did have a deep vein thrombosis. You know, just putting IVs not incorrectly, and I'm saying, that's not incorrectly, you missed the vein. So all, all of that stuff that I got through ship's captain's medical training, paramedic medical training for racing yachts, um, really come in handy. But it was shocking. And eventually it was getting worse and worse. We didn't know when she was going to die. But one of the things that we did was we took her to Switzerland for a last time to see the mountains, which she absolutely loved. And um, we... Um, chartered a private plane from some mates down at the flying club 
and we flew her there and we took her out and it was she was absolutely magical my flying instructor who taught me to fly it was he was retiring and um we'd arranged for him to go to the RAF club to have dinner and i said to frank i'm not sure i can go to this and she couldn't speak anymore um she'd lost the power of speech and seeing the person that you love basically she couldn't do anything other than blink that was that was the only thing she could do uh, i went to this do um, and I come back and I could see straight away she was dying. And we took her to hospital and, she, and I said, do you want to go home? And we took her home and, and she died at about seven o'clock in the morning. And she said some things that she never wanted anyone to see her when she died. And I'm afraid I didn't honour that. She died in our family room just there. And I, I just let the family do what we wanted to do. And and that was great. And, um, you know, support I got from my friends was and is amazing to this day. But I don't, I don't feel that I've lost her. She's still right inside me. And the pain of her death confirms to me the power of my love. And I'll never, I'll never take that away or allow it to be taken away. And I see it as a strength, not a weakness. And, and the thing that I've learned more than anything in my life is to ask for help whenever you can. It won't always be forthcoming. And don't be angry if it isn't coming, but ask for it. And more often than not, it will be coming. In, in almost every aspect, people naturally want to make a difference. They want to help. People naturally are good. They're not bad. And believe in synchronicity and and believe that you know i will ensure that what the memory of my wife lives on in my children now and will be in my grandchildren and try and explain that to them and even you know from my old man from when he knocked us about i think he was trying to teach us what he thought was right i don't think he was a, a bad man in any way shape or form but I'm lucky that, Franca, when you look at someone in the eye and you can see their soul and you know that they're accepting you and that you can accept them for who and what they are, that's the most powerful connection in life that you're ever going to experience. You may never have it, but once you've had it, it's something of real beauty. And, you know, just talking to you now, I'm aware of just how numb I am in my chest. And I, I, I have comfort in that because it's painful. And um, to have a soulmate is the biggest and greatest gift in life that you can have. But it takes investment, takes honesty, takes risk, trust. All of the things that you within the Royal Marines value so much. Did you ever feel a sense of relief when she passed? Um, the honesty of that is yes. I thought to see your wife suffer, see such a beautiful lady who she couldn't do anything for herself anymore. And she didn't want to eat at the end. She didn't want to take her medication. Um, she'd had enough. But she never ever mentioned euthanasia. And of course, you know, that was something that we could have done. 
in uh, Switzerland or in Holland, and she never ever mentioned it. And the only thing I ever really mentioned to her about death was um, that I would look after and embrace Jan as my own son. And to be honest, it's not a hard thing to do because I love him so much. And, uh, and I've done that. And I always will do that. I can't be his dad. His dad is someone else. But I can love him as a man. I can love him as my stepson. And I do. And ironically, the three kids all love one another as well, which is nice to see. First off, I thank you for sharing that. I know that it's, it's painful for you to to recall that those memories. I'm just wondering how the grief that you're still suffering many years on, how you managed, how you've managed to still be professionally successful whilst dealing with the personal situation that you were, were going through and are still going through now. So things get you at different times. So I was looking for the remote control device for the garage and, and I couldn't find it. And I found these two clickers and I looked at them, didn't know what they were for. And they were for the stair lift that we installed in the house. And it was like a punch in the chest. Um, seeing a beautiful woman, you know, Franca did yoga every day. She was amazingly fit, loved mountain walks, mountain bikes, yeah, skied. Seeing a fit, a fit woman deteriorate to the point where she needed to be in a stairlift was really horrific. And what I, I tend to do is I allow it to come in and go straight out. And the reason why I, I know how to do that is because I did three years of psychosynthesis psychology. I studied it. So whilst this is a part of me, it's not all of me. And also, Franca would kick me up the arse if I didn't function. She wouldn't accept me being a wallowing, self-pitying individual. She would expect me to get on with my life and live it, hence live your life. So I've had a candle on in memory of her, bringing her energy into the conversation. And, you know, I honour her um, by, you know, she, uh, she died in that room and her ashes are in that room. And my dog, Sammy, who was our golden retriever, who was a great friend, is there next to her. And one day they'll scatter my ashes with her uh, on a mountain in Switzerland. And uh, I don't want people to be sad. I want them to hugely go on the piss and celebrate the fact that we were different, that we didn't want to be conformists. We challenged the envelope and challenged people and said, yeah, this, this, is, this is good. Or, no, actually, I don't like that. That's wrong. You know, have you thought about doing it in this way? Only she could do it in such an eloquent way. Um, and I'm a prop forward. I kind of, you know, she, you know, if she was a rugby player, she would have been one of the you know, able backs. Um, but she was quite happy to use me as that prop forward that went into the scrum and, and did all of the um, hard graft. Well, they say opposites attract. So, you know, it's, it's fairly apt. It is. And, and yet on some things, we were very close together. You know, we'd, we would feel together. And, you know, I, I remember 
she would love me to go off and do my sailing trips. You know, when I, when I was racing across the Atlantic and things like, yes, go, it's great, off you go. I can have time off from you, marvellous. But couldn't wait to see one another to get back. And that's, that's a lovely, lovely feeling. But to answer your question, it's my, it's my duty to myself to function well. It's a duty to my family and also to the people that are invested in our business, uh, my friends that are invested in my life. You know, I, I'm blessed with a number of good friends and you know, four of us meet three times a year. We call it the Zuma Club. Um, we have a lunch. One's lost his daughter, who we do Team Margot for, for the, uh, uh, the DNA and the stem cells. One's lost his uh, brother, and one's lost his wife as well. And they were, Franco and her were friends together. So we get together four, you know, three times a year and we get really pissed and talk absolute nonsense. And that's, that's powerful. And to, and to know that you can pick the phone up to a friend and talk to them um, is wonderful. And, you know, to know that you can actually love a person uh, as such as a friend is, is a powerful thing. And what Franca helped me to do, and also all of the, the people, the mentors in life that I've had, you know, my scout leader, you know, rugby club captain, you know, uh, when you were injured, you know, I don't care if you're injured. We need another scrum now. Are we going to win this game or what? You know, or actually putting their arm around you. Um, when they knew that I was in trouble, um, you know, that the, the hospital system didn't work. And you know, quite often I'm, I, I, I'm blessed. I, I know a number of people in Parliament and I go onto a stranger's bar and I go out on the terrace and I have a beer in my hand and I look across at St Thomas's and I think to myself, I really, really hope you're better now today than you were all those years ago. And I always think about that. And I think about the church, the church, local churchyard here wouldn't let me bury my old man's ashes in the churchyard. And, and I've always found that, you know, novel. So the old man, you know, fought the Nazis and you know, they won't let me bury his ashes in the churchyard. I, just, I always found that. And I, the hypocrisy of that, I just find astonishing. And then you look at um, Lambeth Roundabout, Lambeth Bridge, and you've got the flats there. There's sort of, you know, several million pounds looking across at, you know, Parliament, and then behind that you've got Lambeth Walk with some of the poorest people in London. You, you just look across from Parliament and you see life. If anyone's listening to this that's recently lost someone, what advice would you give them? Because I I noticed something that you said earlier about you 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 managed to find a way to function well, and I would disagree with that. And the reason why I would disagree with that is that I think you've done more than function. Maybe at times. But when you look at what you've achieved in your business throughout and since that, tra that those tragic or that tragic event, you've been performing, and I think that's I think that's different to functioning. Now, I'm not saying you haven't functioned at times, but you know when you go back to someone that's maybe going through the same similar situation of loss, what advice would you would you necessarily give them? Everybody's journey is unique and different. 
don't judge yourself. Um, be kind to yourself. And it's it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to actually feel like shit. You know, I, I, I remember when when you asked me quite earlier in the conversation, I remember walking the dog on the field and we had the banks after us and my wife had just been diagnosed with a brain tumour. And I remember looking up at the sky and shouting at the top of my voice, why the fuck me? What did I do? Um, and I think shouting at something is quite okay. I think tears, I, I, I never, um, if I want to cry, I do cry. If I want to laugh, I do laugh. I never, ever drink at home on my own. Never. I won't touch a drop of alcohol. Um, I only drink with my friends and when I feel safe. Um, so I think that's really important. I've never liked um, people being um, given antidepressants. Uh, I've got a, a sort of, you know, I spent a year of my life doing, you know, the end of my psychology degree counselling people off of antidepressants so psychiatrists will give antidepressants or doctors will give antidepressants psychologists will get you to use the power of the mind it's okay to have them as a crutch but not as a permanent fix and talk you know just find people you can talk with and to explain and you know being able to talk to my friends that have suffered loss as well is something that i find very very good um, try not to bottle things up, try and express your feelings. Um, I have I have a notebook, which I write all my feelings down, uh, and then I read back in uh, and, and see how I was. Um, I kept a notebook in the last six months of Franka's life, never looked at it. I couldn't, couldn't open it up. So be kind to yourself. Don't actually, there's things that you don't have to do. You know, I, I kept the shoes at the front door um, five years, took me, before I, I, I actually decided to move them. Uh, and that's okay. You know, um, it, it's okay to do what you want to do if you're not affecting other people and you are living your life. Don't be too judgmental on yourself. And the greatest gift that we can all give one another is acceptance. So learn to actually accept yourself. I, I would give all of my business up today to have Franka sat by me right now, because I know that we could do it all again. It's, there's some things in life are not replaceable. And actually accepting that is a part of the start of the healing. And, you know, I've no idea who you show that to, but that's, that's my one, one true thing, just accept where you are and trust in the process. And it is a process. And um, the pain means the love is real. Keith, I think your story is incredible. I mean, we've not even scratched the surface on some of the other facets and avenues and experience you've had. Um, I thank you so much for sharing your story with Franca. It, it was really moving and I was trying hard not to not to cry myself um, because it's so relatable and I know people who listen to this that may have been through or are going through something similar will will take a lot of comfort in it. So thank you very much for that. No, anytime, mate. All the very best. <laughs>